You're listening to The Constitutionalist. I'm your co-host, Shane Leary, a graduate student at Baylor University, and each week I sit down with my professor and the founder and editor of The Constitutionalist, Dr. Benjamin Kleinerman, to discuss the constitutional implications of political developments and the ideas surrounding the Constitution itself. Point of view, and maybe you think it should have gone even farther, but more importantly, if something is done, then you can't say that Congress is doing nothing. And, you know, Trump loves to say, I am the only one who can fix this. And it's a really great message to get people to vote for you if you truly can pitch yourself as the only one. Um, And suddenly, if you're not... Constitutionalist episode 19. Today, we have a very special guest. Um, As I mentioned... In the introduction, Dr. Kleinerman is a professor of mine at Baylor University, and today this is the first episode where the guest is also a professor of mine at Baylor, so we're keeping it all in-house today. David Bridge is an associate professor of political science at Baylor, where he focuses on American politics, political constitutional development, public policy, and the courts. His dissertation, completed at the University of Southern California, examined the way in which party leaders employ the court to accomplish their political and policy goals. But that's not what exactly what we're going to talk about today. Today, we're going to talk about the infamous immigration bill, which I think, you know, might be a perfect case study for the dysfunction of Congress today, in particular, that of the Republican Party, it seems as late uh, of late. So I'm excited for this. You know, David, I haven't been able to follow this as closely as I would have liked, um, although being in Washington and having some friends on the Hill, I've certainly encountered quite a bit of buzz surrounding this legislation. So, uh, Dr. Bridge, I guess to start can you give us the lay of the land here? You know, what's at stake in this legislation? I know it's not merely immigration. There's also funding for Ukraine um, and Israel, which was a particular uh, point of contention. You know, so what's in this bill and, and how did we get here? Yeah, well, first, I hope there's not a quiz on this thing because there was a 300 page bill <laughs> um, and I didn't read it. <laughs> I'm sure most, um, I'm sure most like of the congressmen didn't either. So. <laughs> um, there's so it's kind of a, a two-part bill. There's some funding for foreign countries, namely for um, some of the fighting in Ukraine and Israel, and then the other part that's getting a lot more attention, of course, is the immigration side. And it was kind of brought on by some of these crises that we're having at the border. Um, maybe fabricated, maybe not. Um, but it seemed like politicians from both sides of the aisle said, "Maybe it's time we do something." together on immigration. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's quite shocking to me that this has been so contentious, um, especially because immigration does seem to be like becoming a more bipartisan issue. It's not like, obviously it's always been a real contentious issue for Republicans, but I mean, today there's a lot of concern around it. I think 42% um, of Americans based on recent polling I saw on NPR uh, lately are, you know, are now concerned about immigration, think the border's too open. So this, it seems like this probably should have been a slam dunk. So, um, I mean, you know, what, what exactly happened here? Well, thinking it's a slam dunk thinks that Democrats and Republicans are going to work together and <laughs> that just doesn't happen today. Um, so to see them do that in any context, especially on an issue, like you said, that's becoming so much more salient with time, um, was pretty quite remarkable. And Democrats, Republicans, and a couple of independents uh, um, negotiated a bill. Uh, there, there's different narratives over yeah. who, you know, who was in the room doing what. It, but it kind of seems like um, Senator Langford, uh, Senator Murphy, and Senator Cinema, so a Democrat, Republican, and independent, really hammered out the details 
of a bill that was going to get votes from both parties. Um, the way that, that Murphy puts it, uh, he went to bed thinking that he had 40 to 45 Republican votes and he woke up and he had four. Wow. Um, and so apparently overnight, just the whole thing fell apart. Was that after Trump's intervention? Was that the... That's exactly right. Yeah. Once once Donald Trump got involved, um, for, hey, for better or worse, um, but once Trump got involved, the it was, as the Speaker of the House put it, dead on arrival. And so, I mean, I guess obviously there is concern. I mean, this is just the, why I say this is a good case study is because there's the Trump intervention, but even then, like for weeks now, I I was hearing like you know I I. I being in Republican circles in DC and around staffers, you know, the border is a huge issue. And, and, you know, a few weeks ago, everyone was talking about how we need border reform, but that funding wasn't going to do it. It wasn't a matter of funny. It was a matter of policy. Then all of a sudden you get this bill that changes policy, um, that actually, you know, implements stricter controls, you know, caps, um, you know, uh, how many asylum members we can take. Um, and maybe we can get into those details, um, but then I started to hear these whispers that, oh, wait, this is going to affect the election. So I, I guess, I mean, could you expand a little bit on like what the actual bill was? Because it seems like, I mean, you know, 10 years ago or something, this would have been, uh, you know, a, a dream legislation for Republicans. Um, so I, I don't know. Could you could you get into that a little bit? Yeah. I, again, I, I didn't read yeah. the whole bill, but from what I understand, there's there's kind of two things that stand out. Well, three things that stand out to me for the bill that conservatives would have liked. Um, like you said, they were going to cap the number of immigrants who could come in. Um, and there's different ways they could do that with just border crossings and visas. So that's one thing. Um, another was that asylum seekers had to show, I think the quote was clear and convincing Mm -hmm. proof that they needed political asylum. Um, which is more than just saying that, Hey, I'm here because I need asylum, uh, so raising the the standard of proof is is important. And then also they were going to transfer decision-making authority from the Department of Justice to the Department of Homeland Security. Um, and there's all kinds of down-the-line effects. Maybe Dr. Kleinerman can talk about that, of moving, shifting decision-making authority from one department to another. Um, but all of these were thought to, at base, reduce immigration, which conservatives typically would think yeah. is a, a win. So it's interesting. I mean, I think there's two things going on here. I mean, one, it's it seems to me to be a profoundly difficult bill to try to get consensus on, given that we're grouping together immigration, we're grouping in Ukraine, and then not only Ukraine, but Israel funding, right? So you have not only, you know, I think one of the sort of more tangible splits in the Republican Party today is obviously um, foreign policy. So, you know, I mean, 10 years ago, the idea of giving funding to someone fighting uh, uh, someone who's considered a foreign policy adversary of ours or supporting Israel, that would have been a no brainer for Republicans today. It's not as clear. Um, and then also that brings in issues with Israel. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a big divide on the democratic side. So you already have these challenges, but then, I mean, to me, what the more interesting thing is, is that Congress was thinking through legislation in terms of, presidential campaigns. Like it it seemed as if almost there was no, like to me, this was an opportunity for Congress to reassert itself in some way. 
and especially for Republicans to show, hey, we actually can run Congress. And so even if we, you know, you can, as a voter, it's, it's, it's maybe an ideal situation for you to vote in a Republican House or a Republican Senate. You don't have to wait for a president. We can get things done, um, even with a Democratic executive. But it's, it's, it's just, it's, it almost seems as if, I mean, sure, like Trump's influence is one thing. But to me, the more influ- interesting thing is that it's like there's not a bone in Congress's body that, that has the instinct of, of asserting itself as a branch. Well, that's, I mean, one of the things I found interesting about this, the immigration, the politics around immigration in the last couple of weeks is, I mean, we've spent almost every episode, yeah. Shane, talking about what's yeah. wrong with Congress, you know, and especially that Congress doesn't like to do anything and likes to pass off its responsibilities. What struck me is this was actually Congress being Congress again. You know, there was actually a bipartisan attempt to pass legislation to address a real problem and assert itself. And, you know, so like there was a kind of hopefulness I had that Congress could be Congress again. And then then it all collapsed. So um, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's it's kind of a hopeful story. It's this big deal where members of Congress are trading, well, I'll trade you foreign policy money if you trade me some border restrictions. And, you know, we, we always talk about, we want Congress to, to compromise. We want them to meet in the middle and here they are doing it and doing the kind of horse trading that we think a legislature of this size should do. And, Getting, you know, whipping support from their own parties and telling the other party's leaders, hey, I, I got this. I'll I'll get my people in line. You get your people in line and let's make this deal. And so uh-huh. I, people and hey, people can say, you know, Joe Biden just wanted this off of his desk. He didn't want a big border problem going into the election. And so he was going to take any deal he could get. And so, you know, we, we can talk about Trump's role and Trump plan politics and, and it's very possible Biden was too, but I mean, for for Ben and I, the, the big story is the institutions doing the job that the institutions are supposed yeah. to be doing. Yeah, it's it's actually striking because we're so unused to the kind of horse trading that there were lots of people po- posting on Twitter. You know, the Republicans are demanding in border controls in order to get funding for the Ukraine and such, and you know, it's like. Well, that's like how politics works. That's what's <laughs> yeah. in Congress. But no one knows that anymore. You know, it's like, what wait, what's going on? Where they're making deals. Everyone's scratching <laughs> their heads at Congress functioning. Yeah. <laughs> one thing I heard is that the person who's most sad about this is Mitch McConnell. And McConnell, he actually voted it. He ended up voting against the deal, but he really badly wanted Shane, you're talking about it. He yeah. wanted funding for foreign policy endeavors and now he he didn't get it out of this bill, so he's just going to try to get it through on its own. But it's it was important to him, and he didn't get it, and so he apparently very regretfully um, voted against a, a deal that he said he would support. Well, and he has been someone who at least a little bit has cared about Congress functioning as a, an issue. In other words, that yeah. he cared about Congress being a functional institution. You know, I mean, what's his name was much more concerned about Paul Ryan. This was seemed to be one of his like real issues, but McConnell also seems to care that Congress is a functional. Yeah, don't you feel like we've, we've lost the institutional partisans? 
Like people who yeah. are partisan to the institution they serve. I mean, the last one was probably Bird, right? Yeah. Oh. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a long time ago, too. He, yeah, he's dead now. So. Maybe he's Joe dead. Biden when he was a senator. I mean, Joe Biden loved being a senator. You, you, you know, no one can tell you to shut up when you're in the U.S. Senate. So yeah. he just got to talk and talk and he loved it. <laughs> he was good at that. <laughs> no, I actually, but when... Ryan took over the House. He tried to institute sort of changes that would reinvigorate the House as a real institution, but I don't think they really took, um, you know. So, yeah, we don't have institutional partisans. It's one of the problems, I think, in Congress. And in a way that, like, I don't know. Sometimes I think this was the inevitability of a collective institution. It's very hard to care about a collective institution when you don't benefit it necessarily from it being doing well. You know, so. Yeah, I wonder if the size has something to do with it. It's just, even in the Senate, it's so easy just to kind of hide as one of a hundred. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm thinking of like comparing it to the Supreme Court where I, I think to an extent, Chief Justice Roberts, maybe Justice Kagan, they, I think they kind of care about the court. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, if, if you're, serving a relatively small constituency and you're only one of 435 members, you have no incentive to care about the House of Representatives. Well, isn't there, what's the book like running for Congress by running against Congress? Isn't there (laughs) some political scientist who... (laughs) Actually, that's the campaign strategy for the last eight years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Well, and it is, I mean, I don't know. I just, that, that I think speaks to some of these interesting sort of tensions within the Republican Party itself. I was thinking about this before we got on. I mean, you have, you know, Trump who runs as an outsider and and basically runs against the system and the way you're saying. And that might work for an executive in a certain way. But then he spawns, you know, obviously like on his coattails. Now we have this whole sort of like MAGA movement in the Republican Party, and that has manifested itself in Congress. And you know, I think a lot of people were hoping that would be a fad. It seems now that is a wing of the Republican Party. But that that plays out very differently in in Congress where, you know, you can't constantly remain an outsider once you get into a body where you need to compromise and things like that. And then it creates bigger problems with your constituents, because like you guys are saying, compromise is part and parcel. That's the only way you're going to get something done. So if you've built all, if you put all your political capital into I am not, not only am I not going to compromise with Democrats, but I'm not going to compromise with these establishment Republicans and rhinos. It, it, it only, t- it takes such a small movement to get you to move away from any issue, even if it might be, you know, a push in the right direction. So Dave, why did Trump kill this? Because it's a winning issue for him on election day. And if the problem has already been solved, you can't say that there's a problem. And, and we can debate whether the, the, the details of this bill actually solved the problem. And, you know, we could sit down and we can read 300 pages and talk about it. And maybe it didn't, you know, if, if you're a, a conservative border hawk, I, I understand that. That's a legitimate point of view. And maybe you think it should have gone even farther. But more importantly, if something is done, then you can't say that Congress is doing nothing. And, you know, Trump loves to say, I am the only one who can fix this. And, it's a really great message to get people to vote for you if you truly can pitch yourself as the only one. Um, and suddenly, if you're not the only one, if you know maybe President Joe Biden can also get a deal through, 
you really lose that that leverage to say no one else can do this but me and it's just a winning issue that gets people you know shane was talking about the the maga faction in the republican party it's that is a loyal group of voters who will show up to vote on election day and maybe they're just less incentivized to vote if this bill gets through yeah and to the extent that the conservative Trumpers in Congress weren't happy with this bill. It struck me that, I mean, I, I know there were a lot of conservatives who weren't happy with it. And it struck me that it was partially because the conservatives didn't really participate in crafting it. That is, it's almost like from the beginning, they didn't want this bill. They wanted Trump to do it. They, they were looking toward Trump rather than toward actually passing this bill. Because, I mean, there was a fair amount, I think, of conservative, you know these things better than I do, Shane, but um, you're in these circles. But what wasn't there a fair amount of conservative dislike of this well, bill? Well, yeah, I mean, and, and I should qualify, you know, DC, it's, I mean, I'm very much in the kind of, uh, my social circles tend to be like the think tank camps or the academia adjacent camps, you know, Northwest uh-huh. DC. I, Capitol Hill, like not, I'm not even saying, you know, um, like the Capitol itself, but like restaurants, bars, like the streets over there are, are a little bit more of a mystery to me. I have friends on the Hill and what I've been hearing though, which, which I think speaks to your point, Ben, and both what you're saying is that for weeks now, I've heard conservatives say, you know, we don't want to do this because we don't, we, we want Trump to be able to campaign on this issue. And also the concern that they'd be giving Biden a win. And that's why I think I just say, it's so interesting to me that like, when, like you guys are, you know, you're joking about, you know, we scratch our heads when Congress does what it's supposed to do. It seems like people can't even conceive of Congress getting one over on the president. Like if we, if we mm-hmm. were to have a congressional victory, that would have been, you know, we would have had imagery of Biden signing the bill, and and now it would have seen, uh, seemed like, you know, Biden took care of the immigration problem, and now and now Trump can't campaign on it against him. But the reality is that would have been a win for Congress. Congress would have, you know. The, the, the problem would have borne out such that now Biden can no longer ignore it. You know, all of a sudden his voter base is increasingly concerned about immigration and he's compelled to sign this thing. So, I mean, I think that's the way it should have been framed, but that's not what I heard from, you know, uh, Republican staffers on the on both on the House and Senate side. How many people were in Congress when the well, when the remember the welfare reform bill that Clinton had this, the Clinton signed? That was mostly proposed by Republicans, but Clinton ended up being like being able to take a kind of credit for it, um, even though it came from Congress. I wonder if, in a way, there's. I mean, I, I was just thinking about as you yeah. said that, Shane. I was thinking about the similarities. This could have been claimed in a certain way as a win by Biden, even though it was pushed on him by Congress rather than by, we're just such a presidency center. Yeah, no, I mean, I think they're probably not wrong to think that in a certain sense, because the American public is so focused on the presidency. Um, And like I said, you know, it, it, it tends to be, I think in the, in the attention span of of most Americans who are watching these things, like they don't pay attention to Congress, don't pay attention to Congress, don't pay attention to Congress. And now all of a sudden there's a headline of either the president signing or rejecting a bill, you know what I mean? And that, that seems to be what sticks for a lot of people. Um, so, I mean, that's a problem in and of itself when you just saw, but I still think, you know, you're going to start to, Congress has to start winning to start to change that process. You know what I mean? And then at least people can make the argument. Whereas today, even on the Republican side, I mean, the, the wall street journal headlines and and podcasts, it's just brutal. You know what I mean? Towards the Republican party in terms of its dysfunction, in terms of it, like just, just, just 
shooting itself in the foot over and over again on this front. But I think that, you know, I think it's problematic to just lump every single Republican into the same camp and, yeah. and to do the same with Democrats. And so, yeah, Ben, I think you're right. There were Republicans that were just never going to vote for this bill. I, I can't see Marjorie Taylor Greene ever voting for any bill in which Democrats had a seat at the table. But I also think that those losses were offset by centrist establishment Republicans who were willing to vote for it at plus the number of Democrats who would vote for it. So just to see that entire co- bipartisan coalition die, it was it's unfortunate from an institutionalist perspective. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, this struck me as Congress asserting itself and in a way by asserting itself and then still dying, it's it's even more, you know, the death is more final or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, um, yeah, and, you know, you've, I know in terms of the politics of this, you've thought about it in terms of the, the abortion question on the on the left, and I wondered if you had any thoughts about that, Dave, you know, this is one. After Roe was overturned, I, I think the GOP kind of handed Democrats a winning issue, and I only mean that insofar as if you look at public opinion polls, about 60 to 65% of the country disagrees with overturning Roe. Yeah. And so it, from a purely political slash elections point of view, this is a winning issue for the Democratic Party. They can get out there on the campaign trail and say, you know, look what Donald Trump's appointees have done. The only way to fix this is to elect more Democrats. So make sure that you vote Joe Biden, make sure that you vote for Republican senators so that we can get more liberal justices on the Supreme Court. Or they could even take it further and say, you know, make sure you get more Democrats in the House and in the Senate and in state legislatures so that we can amend the U.S. Constitution. Um, So in a weird way, when you lose the policy issue, sometimes you win the politics if it's uh, a counter-majoritarian issue where the other party is pushing a stance that's really opposed by a majority of the country. And so if we were to see the same dynamic of what just happened with immigration with the Democratic Party, what you would see is the Democrats obstructing all kinds of abortion reform and just letting this Dobbs world simmer until November. Mm. Mm. Um, do you think, although, is abort is immigration counter-majoritarian in the same way as abortion? I can't. It's it's so hard to capture all of immigration with a single poll yeah. question, the same yeah. way you can with abortion. Yeah. So, it's tough to say, but what we do know is immigration does motivate part of Trump's electoral base to show up to vote. And that's important. And he might have lost some of that had Congress passed a bill. And, you know, if if Congress were to pass a bill saying that uh, we're going to revert back to Roe versus Wade standards, which it would be perfectly in line with Dobbs. This is one of the things about Dobbs that people don't understand. The Supreme Court didn't give abortion back to the states. The Supreme Court gave abortion back to legislatures. Well, Congress is a legislature, and Congress could pass a law 
Um, but if they did that, I, I wonder how many of these otherwise conservative, what, what Trump would call suburban housewives, yeah. how many of them would now no longer be motivated to vote Democrat in this upcoming election? Um, it's, I don't, you know, Congress is, ne- if they can't pass an immigration deal, they're never going to pass an abortion deal. So we'll never know. Yeah, it's interesting. My, um, my mother was a big supporter of Trump in 2016 and in 2020, um, she turned on him because of January 6th, but she also has turned on him and the Republican party generally because she's fairly aggressively pro-choice mm. and she just no longer, she's very uncomfortable with the extent to which the Republicans, you know, she, she said, you know, the problem with Trump was that's how we ended up with Dobbs and that's a real problem. So it, it, it does seem like, you know, she, I don't know, it's a funny combination, but there, there are people like that who've been voting, voting Republican because they knew the Republicans couldn't really do anything about, about abortion. So they were perfectly fine with the Republican so long, knowing that they could be comfortably pro-choice at the same time. But, Dobbs changes all that in an interesting way. So. Yeah, and, and it seems like the Democrats' strategy is to put these ballot initiatives um, on the ballot in swing states. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, protecting a right to an abortion is going to be on the ballot in Nevada, for example, in 2024. And the thinking is, okay, so what we'll do is we'll put this initiative on the ballot and that'll get people to show up to vote because they really want to vote about abortion. They care about it. And while they're there, they will vote for Joe Biden. And so the thinking is, let's get uh, Democrats, liberals out to vote by having abortion itself on the ballot. And then while they're there, we'll win the presidential election. And I'm just worried that there are people like those who you just talked about, like your, your mother, Ben, who they're going to show up to vote and they'll vote for abortion rights, but they're otherwise conservative. Uh-huh. And so if they feel like abortion rights are protected in their state, well, uh-huh. why not elect Donald Trump then? And I, I wonder if this is what exactly what Donald Trump wants. Mm-hmm. I mean, he also mm-hmm. claims he's the only one who can fix abortion in this country. Has he said that? <laughs> oh, yeah. He's the only one. Um, he knows he knows how to cut a deal on the issue, and, and I guarantee you, he thinks that the deal is just these ballot initiatives, uh-huh. because it allows him to to stay out of the issue and keep his coalition together. There's some joke lurking there about Trump and women and such, but I, I can't. Remember. <laughs> um, yeah, interesting. The I don't know. So in a way, your your take on all these things means it's better to never solve a policy problem because you can always keep it as a political problem so long as it's not solved as at a policy level. That's the tragedy of American politics, yeah, right? Yeah. Is that policy and politics sometimes are are in opposition. I mean, look, Ben, you and I are just like egghead professors, right? Like mm-hmm. Shane, what's what's the word on the street? Like you know real people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't I don't know. As you're talking, I don't know that I can speak to real people. I, I think like 
the thing that's so interesting to me about this abortion question is when you look at, like, I think you're entirely right that it was, you have these issues that can be winning issues because they seem so far afield of, of ever actually being solved. So Republicans can run on pro-life platforms. And then you can, it, there's this interesting thing where you can have people who are comfortable with it because they think it's protected. So if they agree with that Republican on 90% of issues, but not that, you know, they don't think Roe is going to get overturned. And, and then on the other side of that, you have this interesting sort of coalition form for overturning Roe, wherein, you know, you have these vehemently pro-life people, but you also have these institutionally focused people who would say, you know, abortion is something that should be decided by the people. Abortion is something we should legislate. You can't find the right in the constitution. So the Supreme court shouldn't be legislating from the bench. And then when it gets overturned, you kind of, it seems like you kind of lose that segment in a sense, because, and this goes back to, I think Americans not thinking institutionally, the issue just immediately becomes we had abortion as a right and now we don't. And now we need to decide whether or not abortion's just, but I think there's very few people voting who are actually saying to themselves, which branch do I want solving that? And and was it a yeah. problem that the court solved it um, in the first place? So, but but and I also agree with your earlier point. I mean, it's it's very hard to map on. That's such a singularly focused issue to the immigration issue where you've really had this like I don't know. It's it, it, it's such a snowball that has started as you know sort of broad disagreement over assimilation and who should be coming in and jobs on the one side versus dreamers and, 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 you know, people coming here to better their lives. And, but we've gotten to a point where it has, I, I guess, you know, just tying it back to the immigration issue. I'm just shocked that this can't be more bipartisan when you look at how open the border is, you know, I mean, I don't think we've framed that thus far, but like, if we think about 2023, like 2.5 million encounters of migrants at the border, and of that, you have 3,400 gang members, 140 terrorists, six human rights violators, and 108 foreign fugitives wanted for either murder, rape, et cetera. You know, violent. You crimes. really were prepared with the numbers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so this is what I'm saying. Like, that's starting to freak people out. And I think national security, we don't always agree on national security. We obviously don't agree on Ukraine. We don't agree on, um, on Israel. But the crux of the disagreement in that is foreign wars. It's never homeland security. Do we want Americans to be safe? And it, it, so, you know, I think like we, the polling data reflects this. It's just, it's a real shame that that institutional thinking has dropped out and the presidential politics of campaigning has not allowed us to find some agreement on, on what is essentially a real national security issue. Yeah. And this way, I, I think, I mean, I think the immigration issue has was nationalized by the bus buses, you know, that yeah. is when Abbott started sending buses to New York city and Chicago and, and such places, they, it brought the, brought attention to immigration in a way that there hadn't been attention to it prior to that. And so suddenly like Eric Adams, yeah. the mayor of New York is talking about immigration. There's no way five years ago, Eric Adams would ever have been talking about illegal immigration, you know, or, um, the mayor of Chicago is talking about immigration. So I think the issue has nationalized. And at least from what I can tell, it's now the, the position, the, the pro-immigration, the pro-open borders position does seem to me counter-majoritarian. You know, I, I mean, I take my bearings too much from 
anecdotes um, than than perhaps I should have as a should as a good political <laughs> scientist. But every time I've gone to a like gone to a major city recently, I always end up talking to the Uber drivers, and invariably they now have a lot of opinions about immigration, and their opinions are anti-immigration. You know, including. Uber drivers who are Mexican Americans who are just like there's too many of them there's we can't there's not enough jobs what are we going to do you know so <laughs> at least my my straw poll of Uber drivers in major cities they seem now including black and and Mexican drivers you know seem now they don't want any more immigrants coming in so well um, at least by one measure right like like this is a huge winning issue for Cuban Americans in Florida, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. and I mean, Florida used to be a, a purple toss-up state. I mean, yeah. look at the election of two thousand, right? Um, and now it, it's kind of we we just kind of put it in the Republican column, and it's largely yeah. because Cuban Americans are so conservative on on things like this. So. You're not entirely wrong, Ben. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think, yeah, it's fun. Now I'm thinking about the Uber conversations I've had. You know what I mean? And I have had some wonderful conversations. Also, people should talk to their Uber driver more. I think, you know, you get, you really do get some great conversations. Um, and as a former Uber driver, I really would advocate for that. But uh, did you drive Ubers? I did. Yeah. When did I was, you really? Yeah. When I was applying for graduate school and uh, before I worked in the New York State Assembly, I was, I was working on my application and I thought, you know, like I, I, I had to take the GRE. I had to do it. So I just, uh, I was living at home driving Uber. And uh, it was an interesting, um, I once had a homeless man sit in the front seat and show me his knife collection. I wouldn't recommend that oh. experience. But overall, oh. it was a great, um, you know, it was a great, uh, it was a great time. And I, 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 you know, Ben Sass did this actually as a senator. He like, he like, did wanted, he really? Yeah, he went to Nebraska and like would drive Uber sometimes just to connect with his constituents. Uh, um, uh. but yeah, so it's great. But in any case, you know, I've talked to, I, I was talking to a guy just the other day from, I think Nigeria, who was a legal immigrant who was concerned about it. And he was also very pro America and he was very, you know, this is the land of opportunity and he was studying English and, you know, really just a wonderful guy. And you have all these splits over who has come here legally, who has come here illegally, you know, and, and then you have these splits over, you know, why are people coming here? I think, there's broad disagreement over how many people should be coming in. Um, but I, to me, it just seems like a no brainer that we want to know who is coming in. And, and I mean, to your point about Cubans thinking differently about this or Ben, even like, you know, Mexicans and things like that thinking differently, the numbers have trained changed dramatically. I mean, I don't think people realize what these last four years have done in terms of immigration. Now that people know it's open season at the border, you're not getting like you would expect Mexico, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador. You expect those countries right there under the border. Over 50 percent are people from other countries. So people are coming. I mean, my buddy was in Uzbekistan and people were talking about traveling to South America to get into America. You know what I mean? So it's like people are coming from everywhere, you know, and uh, and, and it is it just it, it just it does become a national security issue. I mean, those numbers I listed earlier about, you know, known terrorist gang members and stuff. Those are the people we've caught. That's not the 1.7 million gotaways since 2021. People that just, the border is completely overwhelmed. You have no idea who's in the country. So, I mean, it, it just seems to me like it's a complicated issue. But if there's one thing we can agree on, it's like, let's have a system where we know who's coming in. And then let's get into the details of why people should be coming in. You know, what are their intentions? How many people can we take? It's a completely separate question. 
it's so interesting that you frame it that way because there are so many progressive Democrats who are disappointed with Joe Biden because they see him as being so tough on immigration in trying to to quell that narrative yeah. from the Trump world. And I, so much in politics is advertising and winning the agenda, framing issue. And Trump has been just marvelous at this with immigration, I think. Um, putting it out there, getting people talking about it. And that that's it's not the worst thing, getting yeah. people talking about an issue that's that's really important, but it just feels like Biden is always playing from behind on both the right and the left about this. And I think also, I mean, the way the issue was framed perhaps before Trump, you know, back in like the Bush years, it was always frame, being framed as an issue of like grandma Rodriguez who came over illegally, but has now been in the United States for 20 years. Yeah. And should she be sent back? So that that was the narrative around it. And in that way, it was a winning issue for Democrats, I think. Most people thought we shouldn't send her back. She's been here long enough. But I think both with, I mean, the border has become much more porous in the intervening years. And it's become more clear that it's not about sending people back. It's about who's coming in. And there, I think that the issue isn't so obviously a winning issue for Democrats. I mean, especially, again, maybe I make too much of the nationalization of the issue that Abbott initiated. But I do think until that, most people just thought of it as a Texas problem. Well, but I think when you frame it the way Shane did, which I, I think is a very fair framing, you know, we need to know who's coming into this country and what their intentions are once they get here. Yeah. Especially in a post nine eleven world, yeah. like those are f- those are fair questions to ask, and and I think you know I think everyone ranging from progressive Democrats to very conservative border hawks, everybody wants to be asking those questions. But when you frame it that way, also it just it feels like that's more of a winning issue for the GOP. Yeah, one hundred percent. And I mean, yeah, I I don't think people wrap their mind around like. Uh, be, um, to be an American is to be a strange thing because you can be at war and it doesn't really affect you. You know, you're you're this vast sort of hegemonic power. But I mean, there are people in this world that hate us. It, it's just it's just the truth. You know what I mean? And there there are there are terrorist organizations actively working against us. If you don't think that like a, another 9-11 is possible or that like the power grid is not susceptible to attacks or you know what I mean? Like these things. It, it, we we there are cells found all of the time doing these things in this country or attempting them, um, and, and it, it just so yeah. There's two questions. I mean, there's there's that one basic question, which is we have a border. We're a powerful country with enemies. We should know who's coming in. And I think any serious country should be attending that. And then there's the second question, which is is still a fundamental political question, which is who should be a citizen, and what does an American citizen look like. Uh, but that is totally like those are two separate questions, and you can't even begin to have the second conversation unless you've unless you've figured out an answer for the first. I feel like Obama tried to have the second one, even yeah. even yeah. just by calling them dreamers. Yeah. That's a powerful rhetorical tool, I think, that kind of taps into something about our American political tradition and where we started from and what we're about. And I, again, I I think it's a framing issue that both parties try to fight. I. This it just feels like Republicans are winning this one, and it, it feels like Democrats could win the abortion one if if they really wanted to to advertise that one more. 
yeah, it's um, but it's interesting again. Like in 2016, my impression was maybe I'm wrong, but that the build the wall coalition was more a Trump base coalition than it was a, a coalition that was anything like a majority coalition. Do you know the numbers, Dave? What What are the numbers right now on immigration in terms of the popular opinion? Do you, I, I, I don't know. I, I think no. you're right about the build the wall thing. I mean, he couldn't, he couldn't even get the wall funding through Congress. Yeah. So he had to use an executive order kind of rearranging the funding. Um, yeah, I was just wondering if my Uber driver impression is is true or if it's just like I've gotten especially conservative. Uber I have some of the numbers up just, I mean, just for conversation's sake. It, it, this is from February 7th, uh, PBS. 42% of Americans, which is 72%, including 72% of Republicans, think the U.S. is too open um, and that and that, that actually runs the risk of losing its identity. So it's not merely a border question. 42% think Of that. Americans, huh. yeah. And, and if you ask the other question, which is... Um, Sorry. Oh, American. How open are American to, Americans to people all over the world, and whether that remains essential to the fabric of our nation? That is down to fifty-seven percent, as opposed to sixty-six in just twenty twenty-one. So you've seen a sharp decline very recently. I think people are really kind of freaking out about this, and I think you're right that the the nationalizing the issue and 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 pushing this because it's not only Ben. It's not only the fact that. It, it, before we were sending migrants to New York and, and Martha's Vineyard and these places, it's not only the fact that this was remote, that this was at the border, but it was also the border states tended to be Republican. So it was very easy for people in their mind. And I'm not saying this was like a, I mean, I, there are operatives nefariously framing this, but for the average American, you know, the, it's, it's, it's not only that's far away from me, but it's also, those are particularly insensitive people in those border states. And, you know, I would love to welcome these people. And then people brush up against the reality of like, hey, wait a minute, it's actually very difficult for my city to accommodate all of these people, you know, especially quickly, like maybe we could do it. But if, uh, if, you know, if 100,000 come, I mean, I don't know the numbers, but you know, enough come in to overwhelm New York City to where Eric Adams is like, you know, we need to back up here, which is a significant shift in, uh, in opinion, you know, um, I, I think that's kind of what happened. Although I'm still confused, like how many buses are going to these cities? I mean, it doesn't seem like there could be. It doesn't enough. matter, though, right? It's uh, you get yeah. you send one or two buses, and then you get it on the front page of the New York Times, and that's that's what yeah, matters. Yeah, or even right? you, you. I mean, you see these videos of like lines of people waiting to be processed, and you know, like if you're in like you know a New Yorker walking by that, like that that sticks viscerally in your mind, even if yeah. that's a couple buses. Yeah. One day of like, you know, an agency being completely overwhelmed in your city. Uh, is significant to you. Yeah. Hey, Shane, could you read the, the 42% number again? Yeah, just uh, 42% of Americans overall, including 72% of Republicans, said they felt the border was too open. Um, See, this is where I think like just a cursory reading of that is incorrect because that that could be read as like 58% think it's not open enough. Yeah, yeah that's um, true. That's true. But I also I don't think that's true. I think for forty the the other fifty eight percent are like, yeah, it's fine. I don't really think about it. Yeah. And for forty two percent, they say this is a major problem that motivates me to to choose one party over the other. Yeah, that's what strikes me about it is that it's. Um, I mean, I, I feel like five years ago that would have been twenty percent or something like that. You know, 
42%, almost a majority, or almost half of Americans think this is a major problem now, is a real framing. You know, it's, it's, a, it's quite a difference from what it was six, seven years ago, I think. Um, should we, should I ask my question? I think you should ask your question. Right? <laughs> my questions. <laughs> I don't know if you listened in advance, Dave, but we ask each guest our, um, or I've been asking each guest a question, favorite, favorite president, but also, so favorite president, favorite Supreme Court justice, both living or dead, and favorite member of the legislature, both living or dead. So... Uh. Well, all three oh, wow. institutions. Okay, and, and I need a, a, a living and dead for no, you? No, 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 no. living or either. Dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just okay. Yeah, you get the whole spectrum <laughs> of American politics. <laughs> oh boy. Um, well, Supreme Court justices. I mean, so I feel like my answers are kind of chalk here. Like John Marshall's my favorite, but uh, how about this? I, I will say I really like Elena Kagan. Um, and it's not because of the the direction of her decisions. It's because I, I think it's good to have a politician on the court. Um, mm. I like to say the problem with Elena Kagan is that she's really not meant to be a Supreme Court justice. She's meant to be an elected political official. She she loves the bargaining and compromising. I love her at oral arguments when she's like, well, now, you know, Brett probably thinks this. And, and she's like telling Kavanaugh what he thinks. <laughs> um, so it's, I think she brings a little life into the, the institution. She, I think she's the only one who didn't serve as a judge immediately before going to the court. Yeah, she's just a law professor, right? And solicitor general, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe it's better to have professors. It's one of the few things. Oh, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> 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 uh no that's interesting favorite uh, favorite legislator man i i don't know i sometimes i i wonder what what john quincy adams life was like he just he kind of had his fingers in everything yeah. all the time he most people don't know this he was even offered a seat on the supreme court and he turned it down so is that right yeah, I, I wonder what it huh. would have been like to go back to the House of Representatives. Yeah, after you were president, that's incredible, and and that's a really good answer because I mean that just shows something about like just his fiber as a statesman, like willing willing to go from the highest office to 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 being a House rep and stay there and stay in the game. I I just think there's something beautiful about that that we don't see today. Yeah, favorite. Did, I, did I, I tell you my um yeah. my great my. Yeah, great grandmother was an Adams, so I'm actually related to the um, to the Adams family. So, I, yeah, <laughs> I always knew you were part of the the American I'm the dynasty. Only Jewish Adams, probably. <laughs> yeah, we always knew you were an entrenched elite. <laughs> <laughs> you with your podcasts. <laughs> Well, guys, I, I want to build up to this a little bit. Who who are your favorite presidents? And maybe I'm just kind of filibustering here for a little uh, bit. I actually love no. Oh. I've been waiting for a guest to turn it around. Yeah, on no us, one's turned it and back. That on has us. never happened. <laughs> <laughs> this is never. Yeah, and and I will say I like this question because uh, it tells you something about the way people think about the institute. Like for, I mean, I really like. I have to think about it more, and I'm not going to answer right now on the, in terms of the court. I don't have an answer because I just like. 
the court does not interest me in the way it does a lot of people, which I think is uncommon for political science. Like there's just something about it that's, which is funny because it's the most sort of, I think, intellectual branch, but it's not, there's something deeply unrepublican about it to me, even though it is preserving the constitution, things like that. Um, but, and I mean, in terms of presidents, uh, yeah, I'll just do a total cop-out. Um, I mean, I actually think it's not a cop-out because everyone would choose Lincoln, but I, I just am profoundly enamored with Washington and the way in which he, I think, influences the unwritten constitution in terms of our sort of dispositions towards American political life and what constitutional conduct is like. And, and I really, I mean, just embodying like, the commander in chief, like he's really a founder in a classical sense to me. And, and I'm very enchanted with that. So I would say Washington, uh, I'm sure Ben's is Lincoln, but maybe he'll have another answer. <laughs> yeah. You can't take the cop out answer. Well, I, I mean, I have an entire section of my, my office devoted to books about Lincoln and <laughs> statues of Lincoln and a picture of Lincoln. And so it would be, you know, it, the answer is Lincoln. <laughs> so. Okay, who's your second favorite? My second <laughs> Maybe favorite? That's what we should um, ask. That's the question you should be asking guests, really. The, the place that I, I get really controversial is in top five, because my second favorite is Washington. Mm. Um, but I would put Reagan in the top five. And this is where my daughter gets really angry. Because <laughs> um, apparently Gen Z hates Reagan for some reason. But um, I can I, actually <laughs> see that because Gen, like, Gen Z to me seems to be like – you, you're either progressive and hate Reagan for the obvious reasons, or you're like some new right, you know, Republican who is like, who hates who, who's like, oh, like we need to get rid of our, you know, like the, the trappings of Reagan is not, you yeah. know, we're not winning, things yeah. like that. So Reagan would be in the top five. So that's, that's my non-cop-out answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, in terms of the other two, gosh, um, Supreme Court justices, I mean, Marshall is always the obvious one. The We have a graduate student, yeah, Bridget's writing on um, on Joseph Story. It's kind of made a good case mm. for Story. So maybe there's something to be said for him. Um, I think Harlan, you know, I think the dissent in Dred Scott is amazing and impressive. And, you mean Plessy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in Plessy um, is amazing and impressive. So, I but that seems like a cop out answer. I don't have a good answer to and and to the legislator. God, given that I ask this question every episode, we have a guest. I should have thought more about. I, it. I've been waiting for this moment since like our first guest episode. I knew someone would turn around on us, and I knew neither of us had like given the <laughs> given the question <laughs> serious thought. I mean, I have my I've said my congressman before. It's Henry Clay. Um, yeah, I mean, oh, only, that's a great choice. Well, only oh man, only, you you win, Shane. Only because he invented the mint julep, but it has nothing to do with his legislative I was about to say Henry record, Clay. But, I was about to say Henry Clay before you said that. You beat me to yeah, it. Yeah, so it looks like I'm just copying you. No, he was great at compromises. You know what? What better thing for a member of Congress than to be great at con- compromises? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I could say when Lincoln was in the House. <laughs> that's actually a great answer. <laughs> Don't choose Lincoln for the presidency. Choose him as your congressman. That's that's gold. <laughs> Spotty Lincoln. He kept emphasizing. It's one of the few times like a member of Congress was super aggressive about presidential war, you know, yeah. saying to. Um, yeah, that is interesting. To what's his name? Um, who started? Who was president? I'm drawing a blank. 
the president who was president during the Mexican-American War. It was Polk, right? Polk, yeah. I kept saying to Polk, you know, what's the spot that you brought the the troops to? Because it was basically Mexican territory, and then the, the Mexicans, Mexican army responded because he, they had attacked. They'd gone into Mexican territory. And so Lincoln kept emphasizing that it was unconstitutionally commenced by by Polk and I think even the Whigs in Congress were like, just shut up. No one cares. <laughs> you know? I think you guys would like this. In one of my classes, I do a presidential fantasy draft. And <laughs> students are broken up into teams and they they draft a team of presidents. And it's great because the conversations are like, no, Kennedy is not a third rounder. You gotta be kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's a really good idea. That's that's tremendous. I, I, I do that. I'm going to steal that. Actually, Dave. <laughs> one of the things I, I still want to hear Dave's uh, congressman. But what, one of the one of the things I just I, I love about Lincoln that I think doesn't get enough appreciation, which I think is a very funny. I'm I'm not going to draw the parallel perfectly. Obviously, the Republican Party gets accused of being very conspiratorial today, um, and I'm not saying it's in the same high minded way, but. I think we often forget that Lincoln could be said to be one of our most conspiratorial statesmen. You know what I mean? Like when it comes to the Mexican-American War, when it comes to Dred Scott, so many of his speeches are these vast conspiracies, you know, uh, presented to the American people. I mean, the conspiracy, yeah, because it was Dred, it was Stephen Douglas set up the, the conditions where people didn't care as much about the morality of slavery. Yeah. Then Dred Scott, you know, enters the, the picture. And then, you know, the, then by Buchanan, you have the people saying, well, let's nationalize Dred Scott. I mean, Lincoln was really convinced there was a kind of secret conspiracy between the Northern and the Southern Democrats too. I've always wondered if he was convinced of that yeah, or if it was yeah. just made good fodder. I don't, I don't but know. it's just, when you read some uh, of the speeches, it's almost like he's like, you know, I'm going to blow this thing wide open. And he's got this <laughs> room with like newspaper clippings and string, you know what I mean? And he's just... <laughs> he's the Marjorie Taylor Greene of the 1850s. <laughs> I wonder if we could find anything where Lincoln's saying, I'm the only one who can fix this. <laughs> so do you have a legislator yet, Dave? Yeah. Well, I think my le- I, I copped out with JQ. Oh, yeah, you said John Oh, okay, okay. Sorry. That's I right. that. yeah. So That's for right. president, I mean, Lincoln is the easy answer. But so how about this? How about my favorite underrated president? Yeah. Can I give you that? That's great. Yeah, yeah. That's I great. like Zachary Taylor. Um, so wow. I, really? Um, I think he he did some things that were kind of contrary to his upbringing. So he was a slaveholder, but when he became president, he didn't become the president of slaveholder interests. Um, He insisted that California would be a free country or a free state when it came in. And I think that that was if California had come in a, a slave state, I think that just would have blown things open much earlier. And, you know, maybe maybe the South Southern secession becomes more likely of succeeding if it happens 10 years earlier. And there's one story of um, some members of Congress coming into, to the white house and saying, you know, if if you don't do this, if you don't bring California in as a slave state, we're going to have to go back and we're going to have to secede. And he looked him right in the eye and he said, if you do that, I will hunt you down and I will hang you myself. And I just, I love that story about that goes crazy. <laughs> that's, no, yeah. that's a great answer. I've never heard that take. Um, that's awesome. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Uh, 
I mean, in some ways that's right, because Taylor was much less, it wasn't, I mean, the, the Northern Democrats um, were doe-faced, you know, in, in the face of Southern opposition. And Taylor, being a slaveholder himself, somehow stood up against the South. He's one of the few guys to do it, you know, so. It, strangely, a very take. great disappointment to Southern Democrats. Wow. <laughs> Well, that's a great. What idea. a great question, though, yeah. that you guys ask people. <laughs> and I appreciate you turning it back around. That's never happened before, and uh, I've been waiting for the day. So that was. Well, now I'm going to ask you who your favorite attorney general of the 19th century was. So. <laughs> we'll get back to you on that one. <laughs> well, hey, Dave. Lincoln, he must have been attorney general. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Who's your. Okay. <laughs> Well, Dave, <laughs> this was great. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, really enjoyed the discussion, and hopefully we'll do this again some other time. But uh, yeah, thanks for taking the time. Thanks, thanks for having me, you. gentlemen. Keep up the good work. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Constitutionalist. If you have a moment, please rate and review this episode on whatever platform you're listening on. And be sure to check out our written publications and blog at theconstitutionalist.org. And from myself and Professor Kleinerman, we'd like to offer a special thanks to the Jack Miller Center, whose generous funding makes this podcast and The Constitutionalist itself possible. See you next week.